Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on The New Aleph, the refugees make it out of Pan and into Hale, but Aramis and Vicky returned to Pan. Paul, however, went to Prometheus and tried to reunite with Susie, but things did not go very well. And now, chapter 20 of The New Aleph. sighed as she looked at the note Paul had just written her on the ash clam about things moving slowly with Susie and that he didn't know what to do with his new super smelling powers. Standing between two racks of old women's coats, she erased his writing from the chalkboard-like inside surface of the shell half and tried to write small so she could fit her response in. The Susie situation sounds tough. For the smell thing, You could look at police wanted boards, then follow the scents and catch the person. She stuffed the clam in her pocket. She headed toward the end of the rows of clothing so she could get to the shelves covered with used Mazai machines. As soon as Gail had heard Aramis talk about getting useful parts for repairs at thrift stores, she'd been ecstatic and now sent Aramis out with cash to check a different store or two every day after lunch. Right now, she was in Hagen's Thrift. Aramis was still consciously aware of the shell half in her pocket. She felt phantom vibrations from it, expectant of Paul's response, but the very particular way it shivered from the scratches of someone else riding on its pair was easy to tell apart. The half would vibrate and even make the sound as if it was the one being written on, silvery pencil scratched onto slate-like black. She pretended she wasn't distracted as she looked over the items on the shelf. All of them were dull and scruffed and had prices written on them in some sort of faint wax. The bottom shelf was just the transducer adapters. The next shelf up was mostly Mazai lights, the glass of each all varying shades of almost blue to dark amber. There were flashlights and clip-on book lights and desk lamps and even a heavy-duty mechanics work light with a row of six crystal-clear bulbs. That one was expensive for a thrift store item. Five rubles. But Aramis put it in her basket anyway. It was hard to find amber glass enclosures like those bulbs had. Nobody bothered purifying and coloring them to that quality anymore. It was a good find, but not the best she'd ever had. She'd once come across the glossy black outer casing for a trigger cylinder, which were worth a fortune if undamaged. It was filthy and deeply encrusted with dirt, so it looked like a gross little piece of black metal piping but it still had its synchronization code encased on the inside, so it would still work if DC paper or AC paper with a triggerable sequence was put inside of it with the matching code written on it. Aramis shivered as her pocket felt pressure and she heard scratching. She pulled the shell half out. Are you really going to try and stop Soma? It angered her to see him indirectly bringing up his concern over her plans that way his concern for her safety, which only extended a certain degree. But he didn't want to actually make the sacrifice of being around in order to help keep her healthy and safe. All he'd done is put that dumb condition on her. She stuffed the shell away and looked at the next shelf to try and calm herself. Two power tool gloves with drill bits, 
Three gloves with minimal telekinetic abilities, short range, all of them in very poor condition. Those were good for picking up screws dropped inside things, among other uses. A rock crusher glove, for use in gardening or masonry. Two fire control gloves, for use in welding and glass blowing and all sorts of other things. Four very cheap water control gloves, which she'd never need, which could be used for anything from cooking to medicine to plumbing to clay sculpting. Three or four air control gloves, which were used for... Hermes couldn't remember. She remembered knowing one guy who would use one to keep campfire smoke from hitting him in the face. All of those were either expensive or terrible quality. Since this was an open shelf in a thrift store, most were the latter. The kind a homeowner would get for a birthday present and only use once every few years. Because of that, they weren't worth taking back to Gale. Except for one of the fire control gloves, which had all its nooks and crannies filled with carbon, but it was far heavier than it looked and had a heavy-duty blood battery slot on the back. She tossed it into her bag and sighed, frustrated that she'd only found two things worth taking back. Standing there and letting her eyes scan over all the stuff she'd already deemed unworthy, she breathed and tried to think of how to reply to Paul. She took out the shell and wrote, I don't know what I'm going to do. Phyllis is starting a zine, but that won't do anything unless it accidentally gets noticed by a bunch of people. All the people who said they'd wanted to leave for Hale, that bailed in Chrysoprase, never came back. And I don't know where anyone from the Remnant Study Group went. She put the shell away and looked over the top shelf, which she'd already dismissed as not having anything useful. Boredom persuaded her to look again anyway. There were some of the shoe analogs to the gloves, but here the elemental and Mazai abilities were more quaint and random. There were kids' sneakers with hover abilities, climbing shoes with rock-attractive abilities. Not a lot of trade applications. Aramis then saw a kid's boot up there that was decorated in plastic armor and had a name written on it in Chinese or Japanese. She pulled it down from the shelf and looked it over. It had a little air manipulation driver in the toe, which meant it was probably meant to make you kick things farther. She smirked and set it back down. The shell scratched in her pocket. She pulled it out and started reading before Paul was even done writing. Well, I know you, and you're tenacious. You have a way of figuring out how to accomplish your goals, even when you go around being all insecure and unsure. That's why I want you to be careful, is all. I care about you. Not enough, Aramis said out loud as she turned to go pay for the two things she had in her basket. You care mostly about yourself. But then she stopped again, standing with rows and rows of women's clothing stretching out on either side of her. She had an idea. She erased Paul's last message and wrote, This is going back a couple subjects, but you should find the police report related to your murder. That way, you just have to smell yourself, and you'll find him. want something nicer? Soma frowned and gestured at the huge sheet of paper on the table. I don't need anything more than that. The man, looking at Soma through glasses a couple sizes too large, frowned. But you're one of Pan's seated. You should have a palace. 
I have hundreds you could pick from in the archives. Soma looked over at Travis, standing next to her, the two of them exchanging looks of exhaustion. She'd stopped bringing Hune with her to negotiations like this because he would become reverential and defend nonsense like this. I am the lowest on the food chain, believe me. A leader of the people, then. The man shrugged and frowned at the drawing as if thoroughly dissatisfied with it. It was three stories with two wings, one wing with a comfortable but modest residence, and the other with lobby offices and a small conference room. It was all she needed to coordinate the offender situation, as far as she knew, and to prepare for some other things. Soma was planning on placing it on a high plateau a few dozen kilometers north of Abinston. That way she wouldn't annoy the anti-Aleph people there, but she'd still be close enough to attend her Kesho lessons, and to make it undesirable for other Alephs to bother her. In fact, the architect's eyes lit up as he reached into a pocket and pulled out a velvet bag. He set it on the map with a chink, whatever inside it sounding like it was metal. He opened the bag and pulled out a silver pin that was a woman with wings instead of arms. People have been calling you the Phoenix Seated. Some friends of mine decided you may want to use this as your crest. Since you don't have one yet, your choice. There's enough in there to decorate all your top staff. Soma took the pin from him and examined it. She looked down at the dark merlot of her seated uniform, visible from within her overcoat. She remembered the medals and crests the other seated had decorating their uniforms. She picked up the bag. Thank you. Travis stepped around the table and looked over the shoulder of the architect, down at the map. How exactly do you build something like this in just a day? The architect smiled, the curve rising slowly on his gaunt face. Only the best for the seated. For most of my work, I make the drawings, give them to a construction manager, and a contractor builds it. Keeps the economy going, and in many ways is cheaper. But none of that is really necessary. Soma sighed and looked at Travis. You missed the show our friend in Abinson put on for us with the chairs. Travis frowned. She told him about it already, but he'd had trouble believing that solid things in the world could be reduced to abstract lines and numbers. He folded his arms, looking at the drawing. So what? You just push a button and it materializes out of thin air? The man picked up a three-ring binder sitting on the corner of the desk, moved to the center and dropped it onto the drawing. Hundreds of pages of detailed instructions written on AC paper. You have to go to the developer's college here for years to learn how to do it. You reference the binder on a sheet of DC paper and have an LF sign off on it. Just have to put in the coordinates. The only reason we don't do it more often is that DC paper is too valuable. Well, and technically it's illegal to do it anywhere where the public can watch you. But there are always ways around that limitation. But, Travis gestured at the binder. What if the coordinates you want to build on are uneven or sand or if there's a high water table? The architect shrugged. You try to make sure to avoid those problems, but even if you run into them, Clausius will fix it. He can usually just... Aleph Dan? They all looked at the door of the drafting room to see Sorensen standing there with a small woman wearing a long coat and a hood over her head. 
The woman pulled the hood back, revealing flawless features and the focused stare of an immortal. Sorensen nodded, as if affirming Soma's assumption of this. Another. But she has some interesting news. The small woman locked wide eyes on Soma and spoke in a rich voice that carried a calm authority. I wanted to speak about it with you in person, Aleph Dan. Soma looked at the architect. We'll be back shortly. Soma, Travis, Sorensen, and the arriving immortal left the drafting room, walking down a hallway and then went up an elevator to the roof. They were atop a blocky lecture hall that was one of three bordering a courtyard. Hemstock University was spread out all around them, the Time River running just to the south. The Galleria was nearby, docked to a pole rising from the center of the roof. Hune was standing by a corner a few paces off, watching. Sorensen spoke something to the immortal that Soma couldn't hear. Then the immortal turned to Soma and lifted up her chin. I speak for a community of many of us. Some runaways, some recently liberated. I approached Sorensen and asked her what you had planned in order to help those still in servitude. We had heard that was part of your agreement for Sorensen to serve you. Her opinion carries great weight among us. Still, I was not satisfied with her first explanation of your plans. Sorensen's face took on a few wrinkles as she turned to Soma. It was odd to see her embarrassed. I'm sorry. I told her about your second phase. Soma shrugged. It's fine. It won't be a secret for long. The immortal nodded. We want to help. We know the Kaze cult is helping you already, but they're imprecise. Travis snorted. Rowdy mercenaries, you mean. Neither Sorensen nor the immortal reacted to the comment. Soma softened her voice. What's your name? Ame. Ame? I haven't figured out exactly how the second phase will work. It will be dangerous, because it will reveal I'm not interested in just one reform. Ame's intense eyes widened. We have been waiting for this for 300 years. Danger is not our chief concern. Not safe standing in the middle of the hallway, kid. Paul frowned as a wrinkled police officer maneuvered around him, carrying three coffee thermoses. The officer looked back at him, his face grim. Someone may bowl you over. Well, maybe not an oak tree like you. Paul watched the officer go, then turned back to the large screen that covered the upper half of the wall and stretched out two meters across. There were 32 wanted posters displayed, as well as two dozen notes and notices and safety reminders and other dull things that felt normal for a government bulletin board. 22 of the 32 posters were for murders. None of them had gray, rocky faces, though. Paul frowned at the screen, confused. Everyone had been talking about the serial killer in the weeks leading up to when he got Paul. With all that hype, did the police still have no information on him? Paul looked to the police officer with a coffee who was about to turn a corner. Hey, uh, excuse me? The officer slowed his walk but did not turn around. I'm in a hurry. Paul caught up with him. I think I have information on the serial killer. Which serial killer? 
The cop turned another corner and stopped by a door. Listen, if you want to make a statement, go to the front desk. The cop used an elbow to turn the handle and open the door just enough to go through, did so, and then let it slam behind him. Paul stood there, looking at the door, having nowhere else to go. He was currently staying in a room at the Lutenia H&M barracks. His family and girlfriend all believed he was dead, and he had yet thought of a good way to convince them otherwise. It had been a whole week since his horribly awkward confrontation with Susie, and he hadn't tried anything since. Any kind of statement he would give at the front desk would make him look pretty suspicious. Details about how the killer finds people, how he tortures them, how he kills them, why he does all of it, and the only explanation he had for why he knew all this was that he had been abducted and killed by him. That wouldn't go over well. Maybe he didn't need anything here. He turned to walk out of the building, a plan coming together in his head. He needed to go back to the beginning. This is where it had ended. A dull street side near the beach and the alley that the killer had emerged from on the night that felt like it was decades ago. It was all so alien, so different from those vivid, terrible memories. The sun was out. People filled the streets. No one took any notice of Paul as he stared at the alley. He tried to clear his head, tried to see if he might smell something here. He closed his eyes. There was the overwhelming presence of the ocean, the salty moistness with a touch of bitterness. There was a slight stench of urine, maybe from an animal. Paul wasn't sure. He wasn't exactly an expert on urine. There were plants, tree pollen, grass mixed with filth from the storm drain swales lining the streets. There was the rich aroma of fried foods coming from the restaurants, densely packed just a few blocks away. All of the scents blended together one moment, then one stood out the next, each constantly going in and out of focus. There, something hidden behind that strong sea smell. Sulfur. Sulfur and sweat. Paul's own sweat. The smell of his own pillow mixed with the smell of rotten eggs. Paul opened his eyes, and the flood of visual information into his brain actually helped him focus in on just the sulfur. It was barely a hint, but it was there, and it led due east. He followed it. Hey guys, I want to let you know about the new single, Glowing Like Gold, out from my buddy's band, Moons of Mars. These guys have flawless music writing and execution, so look no further for your next rock fix. My friend Gio shreds on guitar and just brings the house down. I'm 
fantastic song premiered just days ago, so go get it. You can find Glowing Like Gold and other music by Moons of Mars now on Spotify and Apple Music. Also, real quick, before we get back to the show, I wanted to ask you guys a couple questions about the new Aleph. First question, I wanted to know if you feel like there are any hanging threads in the story. They could be things that I intentionally set up as cliffhangers that'll pay off later, but they may be things that I forgot about. Anything's possible. My second question, and this is a big one, what are your impressions of the relationship between Paul and Aramis? I want to know your feelings on their feelings. It's a pretty important part of the story, so that's why I'm curious. Let me know any way you wish. Find me on most of the things at a William Wright, or send me an email at write.a.william at gmail.com. See, that's how important this is to me. I'm putting my actual email address in this podcast for the very first time. So anyway, I will talk about your answers on a future podcast episode. And anyway, let's get back to the show. Nathan liked Aleph Dan's new house. It was pretty big, with two wings joined at a tall widow's watch. Her flying boat was tied down behind the house with a short scaffolding supporting a steep stairway up to it. But the house was dwarfed by the wide, empty plain of tall grass surrounding it. Huge mountains rising up from the north and west towered over the plateau, putting the house in shadow even at the early evening hour. The plains far below and to the east glowed gold, where the mountain range's shadow ended. His invisibility device switched on, he strolled up to the house. He needed to get a look at the place before he'd make his actual introduction. It would be better to come with Akahiro for that. Maybe have him pretend to be turning Nathan in for the reward. That was a good plan. Maybe. Nathan was pretty proud of himself for thinking of it anyway. There were four lookouts standing out in the field, looking out, obviously. Two were wearing white jackets with the Kaze crest over the left breast. The other two were those pretty-faced immortals. One guard was wearing a funny gadget on his face, probably one of those magical detection devices he'd read about. Fortunately, he already knew his cloak would fool those things. Unfortunately, despite Nathan's confidence, that one did point at Nathan. There's someone here! Nathan froze, wondering how the guy's goggles were able to see him. But then he looked down at his feet and sighed. His feet were spreading out the tall grass around him. Well, I'm an idiot. He reached into his pocket and pressed the cloak button to turn it off. The lookouts pulled out deadbeat pistols and pointed them at him. Hey! I just want to have a conversation with your boss. A woman stepped out of the house, tall and beautiful with short silver hair. She got one look at Nathan's face, frowned, and said, Knock him out. The lookout closest to Nathan nodded and fired, his gun making nothing more than a small click. Nathan blacked out, hearing muffled talking just before hitting the ground and going unconscious. But not completely unconscious. 
He had vague impressions of strong hands grabbing his shoulders and heaving him around, then up one or two flights of stairs, then onto something soft and squishy. A long, drowsy stretch of time passed before he could force his eyes to open. He was lying on a leather couch in a round room. There were windows three-quarters of the way around, but no glass in them. The widow's watch, that's where he was. He felt groggy, like he'd taken too long a nap. With how dark the sky was right now, he'd probably been out for a couple hours. It would be wise to not travel alone. You could generate a couple robot bodyguards with your key at the very least. Nathan looked over and saw a beautiful orange-skinned woman leaning forward on a chair across from him. She was wearing a dark red military uniform with a jacket open and a black t-shirt underneath. Her jet black ponytail, hanging forward over her left shoulder, disappeared in front of the shirt except where the gray light of the darkening sky reflected off the strands. Aleph Somadan. Wait, I can make robots? She nodded. Most Alephs just hire vassals. The less scrupulous ones often force Pravids to bond with them, or they buy immortals as slaves. I hear the robots are not very clever. Nathan frowned, rubbing his left temple and sitting up. He looked at the sparse decorations on Dan's uniform. Four silver pins. The pinwheel crest of the Kaze cult on the upper halves of each lapel, and a female figure with flaming wings pinned below each of those. You guys shot me with deadbeats out there. Something that should have stripped you of all your powers. All it did was knock you out. The only way that could happen would be for you to be a full step above a seated. Nathan's face fell. Ah, shit. That's why the assembly wants you so badly but wouldn't tell me who you really were. She held up the cloaking device Karini had given Nathan, though this does help explain why they've had so much trouble catching you. A friend gave me that. Dan stuck it back in her pocket. But you can have it, I guess. It was a little overly Harry Potter for me to have that anyway. Who is Corduroy? Nathan frowned. I, I don't know. I have no idea who that is. Dan took the cloak device out again and pointed at the bottom. Curving around the base was a tiny etching that said, Corduroy. Nathan squinted at it. I think Ta Tanaka made that. Maybe Corduroy is his alias? I don't know. But you didn't keep me here to ask about that. She didn't speak or move for what felt like a whole minute. Nathan looked around, but it seemed like they were completely alone. The door set in the one side of the watch that didn't have a window was closed. Nathan's attention was brought back as Dan spoke. I have questions about Maybar. Sounds good to me. I have questions for you, so only fair. Is Maybar a computer simulation? Nathan looked at the side. It was. Now, I'm not sure. The assembly claims that it was upgraded 400 years ago. Nathan chewed on his lower lip. There are some problems with that theory. I've been doing some research with the help of some friends because I can't get into threshold without security lighting up like a Christmas tree. So it's been slow. But the biggest problem that I can find is children. Dan's eyes twitched just a bit. Children? 
Well, when we built Maybar, all we could do was upload brain activity. No copying, no making new ones, just moving. Some sort of quantum mechanic limitation. I don't know. You'd have to ask Tanaka about that. But the basics of it were that you're alive in your body, and once you're moved into Maybar, you're alive there in the assassin, and, but your body is dead. Then how would Maybar create new human minds? Nathan leaned forward on the couch. The plan was always to leave Maybar eventually. I was hoping for much less than a century. But we designed a 3D printer that could build us new bodies to transfer back into. But it never worked. And then the Ta decided they didn't care. They didn't want to return to Earth anyway. Just wanted to stay here. I tried to tell people about that, but the Ta locked me up before I could convince anyone. Dan's hands tightened into fists. So, the Ta could have brought us back to Earth, but none of them wanted to, except you. I was the only one that fought it. I wasn't the only one that wanted to go back. I think, I think most of them thought it was impossible to make a machine that could build us new bodies. They did figure out how to 3D print human sperms and eggs, though. Those were just barely simple enough to pull off. So we could have humans conceived in the machine, incubate them for a while, and as soon as the brain was up and running, we'd upload their mind into the assassin. Dan held there silent a moment, then said, You don't believe, then, the assembly's inference that they've solved the conception problem. Correct but they're no longer making babies inside of a machine than uploading the consciousness. Yes. Therefore you believe Maybar can't be a simulation anymore. Nathan snorted a laugh. He stood up and started pacing. I don't know. I help with a lot of the logistical parts of putting this place together, but I don't understand even a percent of a percent of the technical side. We can turn things into points and lines of light and numbers. We can create things out of thin air, like this house. Those all suggest a simulation, as much as I find the suggestion repugnant. Nathan leaned backward against the railing. Yeah, all the weird video game stuff is still here. DC paper still works. Apparently, people are writing development code on their bodies as tattoos to give themselves superpowers. That's probably why the assembly thinks we're all still in a computer. But I don't buy it. Dan looked down at the wooden floor. A cold wind blew over them as they both remained silent and the sky continued to darken. Nathan continued his rant. I was able to confirm some of the story Negri told you about how your family died. It was some screw-up from someone who wanted to kill three homeless people. It took my friends a while to get the exact details nailed down, but that is what happened. Dan leaned back in her chair. Then she stood up and walked over to look out at the blue horizon. Nathan waited, watching her tense shoulders. After a moment later, she started yelling, How does this happen? How do people become so callous? Nathan shrugged. This is just the accepted evil of this generation. The way to keep life running according to the normal that people want. It changes every era. The world I grew up in, we had to sacrifice unborn fetuses and exploit poor workers in developing nations. Dan's forehead filled with wrinkles. What are you talking about? It was easy for Nathan to guess which one was bothering her the most. 
For most of human history, men could sleep with whoever they wished, whoever they wanted, with almost no consequences. Well, except for good old syphilis. I guess you don't know what that is. Anyway, women would get pregnant, but the man could just run off. Just another example of the powerful exploiting the weaker. Then contraception and abortion came along. It gave the opportunity for women to have the same freedom. Soma stood there frozen with her mouth open. But why would anyone not want to have children? People fight and slave for years and go into horrible debt so they could earn the fractions they need just so they can have a second or third child. Weren't there other people who wanted children that would take them in? Nathan stepped forward to lean against the railing beside her. Kids are expensive. People who want kids want to have their own kids, not someone else's. People who didn't have abortions, but couldn't or wouldn't take care of their own newborns, those kids ended up in foster care, floating from one underfunded government-sponsored home to another. That's the kind of stuff that pissed me off more than anything else. I tried to fix what I could when I was mayor of... That's a long story. But that's why no one fought that hard to stop abortion. And those that did were all hypocrites. They say that people shouldn't kill the unborn. But they didn't raise a finger to help the kids that were already alive in the foster care system. Dan hugged herself as if cold. What kind of person would have children and refuse to take care of them? He drew in a long breath. You, you don't know what it was like then. There weren't social service guild rations or state housing centers back then. Sometimes, the only job a person could get didn't pay enough to cover the needs that you guys consider basic. Back then, you had to grow all of your food in the ground. You couldn't just make it blink into existence out of the air. She brought her voice lower. You want us to go back there, don't you? Nathan turned to look at the horizon. People still kill the unwanted. The wind blew over them again, messing up Nathan's hair, but only making Dan's look better. She drew in a breath. How exactly would going back be any better? Because then we'd all be on the same level again. Nathan's hands gripped tightly on the railing, his knuckles turning white. Everyone should be frail and mortal. The rule of the Aleph's has to end. Dan shook her head. But we can do that here. We don't have to leave. From what you've said, this is still a better place. Nathan's stomach went up into his throat. Dawson's face flashed into his mind. Her confidence. Her certainty that she was right on that day when she locked him up for 800 years. He'd fought her and been sure he'd been right. Dawson had tortured and killed close friends of Nathan in order to find out what his plans were so she could stop him. The good guys, the ones that were right, didn't oppress and silence and murder people. But Soma's sincerity, her frank assessment of the situation, seemed to demand that Dawson had not only won, but had accomplished the high end that she so brashly justified. Nathan slumped over on the railing, feeling cold. All his efforts, through his whole life, seemed pointless. That thought only made him angry. But he quickly decided he was not going to accept defeat. Aleph Dan, this world is a fake. It is a lie, and I want to go home. I don't care how much better it seems to be.
Dan looked out forward. The emotion drained from her face, leaving her expression blank. Please leave, Nathan nodded. I'll go. I won't turn you into the assembly, because right now they're enemies of both of us. But that does not mean I'm on your side. Nathan stood there a moment, looking at his feet. He finally sighed and headed for the door. As he opened it, Dan said one last thing. I'd appreciate it if you avoided getting yourself captured. I have a feeling the assembly might kill me if they believe they no longer need my assistance in finding you. He touched his finger to his forehead in a casual salute, though the tone of his voice was serious. Yes, ma'am. Aramis sighed loudly as she noticed the lights were all off inside Jack and Ben's. Was she supposed to break in so that she could attend the meeting? She took a couple steps closer to the door, looking at the windows, then looked down at the note that Vicky had left on her apartment door. It had told her to meet her here at midnight, but the restaurant part of the bakery wasn't open at midnight. There was steam rising from the back of the building, so someone was in there. She frowned and slapped the note back and forth against her hand. She was about to turn around and leave, but then saw someone moving inside. She leaned over to try and get a better look, but just then the door opened. It was Phyllis. You're early. Not really. Aramis mumbled as she followed her inside. Phyllis led her right back to the room where Camille had done his meetings. Vicky was on her feet pacing in front of a table covered with stacks of paper and three pen readers with their displays glowing. Vicky's eyes darted up as Aramis entered, then back down to the table. So, Aramis walked over to a wall and leaned against it. What's up? Phyllis sat in a chair not all that close to the table and pulled out a stack of security paper and looked through it absently, the same way she had looked through that zine during that first meeting to decide how to smuggle people out of pan. Vicky sat down by the table and began looking through a stack of papers. I have an idea. Hermes frowned. What kind of idea? Vicky wrote something on one of the pieces of paper, stood up, and turned off all three pen readers, making the room darker. A balancing idea. Hermes put her hands in her pockets. To balance what? Vicky shrugged. Dan is out of balance, pushing justice on everyone above and below her, aggressively. Pan needs a force to balance out her actions. Like what you did for those people. I just want to organize you. Find ways for you to continue to give that balance. Aramis chewed on her lower lip, trying to figure out what Vicky was actually saying. What, you want me to look for people who are afraid and help them? Not always. I'm trying to figure out how to put an organization together that can facilitate helping people. We'll probably start out small, but Phyllis told me that you have a way of drawing attention. Phyllis nodded without looking up at either of them. Usually in a bad way, Aramis squinted an eye. I don't know. It sounds like we're trying to be a second police force. Vicky laughed and picked up one of the pen readers. That's not what I mean, but I'll explain all that. You need someone used to administration, someone who can help you focus. You have the resolve and the charisma to get things done. I'll help. Aim you. Aim me? Aramis was looking at her shoes. 
I don't know if I want to be aimed. Vicky came over and slapped her on the shoulder. She held out one of the pen readers to her. Sure you do. Aramis took the pen reader and turned it over in her hand. What's on this? Basic organization strategies and, most importantly, operational security. You don't want the wrong people knowing what's going on, so I have a few documents on there on how to be careful. Aramis stuffed the pen reader into a pocket. Ignacio taught me a lot of that stuff already. Vicky's eyebrows went up. Ignacio was terrible at that stuff. I read his case file before Dan's trial. He was a mess. You need to learn some real military intelligence procedures, young lady. Aramis stuffed her hands in her pockets. Well, all right. Oh, also, Vicky cleared her throat as she sat back down by the table. I enrolled you in a WLA class. You need to brush up on your water techniques. You were good out there, but I could tell you were rusty. Aramis rocked her head back and forth. Well, yeah. The room went silent for a moment. Vicky returned to her work. Aramis felt dread. She didn't want to spend her free time reading about military tactics. She didn't want to regularly have people expecting her to be charismatic. She wasn't charismatic. She felt alone again, with no one to talk to about her faith, no one to be strong for her, to be a mirror for her. She had that stupid shell half, which was just a constant reminder of what she'd lost. She finally had a job with Gail, who was a good boss, even if it was mostly paperwork and errands and only rarely actually getting her hands dirty. She needed to focus on that, on the good things she had. Even though it was still part-time, and it was going to take her at least eight months to pay Gail's loan back, at least she was doing something she was good at. And she was getting on-the-job training in Mazai machine construction and maintenance, a skill she'd never got around to teaching herself. She didn't want to add anything to her life right now. I'll think about it. Aramis sped walked out of the room, out through the dark restaurant and out onto the dark streets. I need your help. She prayed to the darkness, hoping that the name would hear her. A god she'd never seen, never heard the voice of, and despite all that in the remnants, promised to be a good father. If she thought about that too much... Her god wouldn't seem much better than Paul. Hey, you okay? Aramis turned around to see Phyllis standing by the door of the restaurant with her hands folded and her eyes narrowed. It was that suspicious big sister look. Aramis wasn't sure if she was more relieved or annoyed that Phyllis had come after her. The two of them stood about five paces apart on either side of the street, rows of tungsten lampposts running left and right beside each of them. Aramis folded her arms tightly around herself and walked not directly toward Phyllis, but instead toward one of the dark windows of the restaurant, toward her dim reflection in the black glass. I miss Paul. Phyllis nodded, looking at the street. I heard what happened. He was kind of a dick, leaving you that way. Aramis felt embarrassed that Phyllis already knew the situation, either from Vicky telling her or because she'd already figured it out a long time ago. I didn't want anyone to know how I felt because I didn't want them to think that about him. He didn't know how I felt. He didn't know he was hurting me. Phyllis sighed and her shoulders relaxed. Well, you tend to pick ones like that. Aramis wasn't entirely sure what she meant by that. She couldn't remember ever falling for someone like Paul before. Do I? Phyllis turned around to look down the road as if she heard something, then turned back to Aramis and shrugged. 
I just think it's stupid. Him crossing from one world to another to go after some girl that thinks he's dead. When he had you right here. He didn't ever look at me like that. The words were empty as they came out of Aramis. It was just raw data. He made me... He made me see flashes of color. Phyllis's eyes softened in a way Aramis rarely saw in her. Really? Damn. Phyllis looked away from her and shook her head. That sucks, Major Balls. Why didn't anyone tell me my glasses were red? You didn't know your glasses were red? Aramis pointed at her face. That's why I got clear-framed ones this time, so I could be sure I knew what they looked like. Phyllis burst into laughter. We all thought you knew. They looked good on you. Well, whatever. Listen, I've had a lot of guys be into me, and a lot of them break my heart. I know you don't want to hear this, but Paul's not worth shutting down over. You probably don't even think you're shutting down, but the last few weeks since you got back from the Narthex, I never see you. You go to work, you go home. Aramis was more annoyed by this comment than anything else. Where would I see you? Down at the docks, where everyone is. I sent you notes. It's not like I suddenly forgot that you don't really drink. Her tone darkened. It's not pretty. Everybody who didn't run away is sleeping in the back storage yards of the businesses that don't mind Pravid's freeloading. Some of them can find rooms to stay in. There are even a lot of humans showing up down there. Aramis was suddenly and completely pulled out of her lull of depression. That doesn't make any sense. Why aren't people just going to the SSG? Phyllis's eyes widened. They're being assholes and not letting Pravids in unless they have jobs. You haven't heard about it because you're probably making enough money to not get the free breakfasts and dinners. That's how they're finding out who to kick out. They make up excuses, say that people aren't cleaning up or some other crap. Too many people left the communes for us to stay there. There's not enough room at Banks, and not enough of us left at Serling. And now there are rumors that everyone in the SSG is going to get thrown out so they can turn the housing into jails for soul offenders. Aramis's arms fell limp at her sides. That's horrible. I don't know why Vicky didn't bring that up. She's all about being dramatic or whatever. Vicky wants you to be a boss for this new cult she's organizing. Because all the Pravids found out that you rocked the job you said you would do, and you actually got people out of Pan. Trust me, they still don't like you because you're a prude and a teetotaler. But they know you deliver. A sting of depression snuck in past the confusion over the greater situation. Aramis knew in a strange, concrete way that she was in the situation because of her faith in the name. Not necessarily because of divine providence orchestrating change and circumstance to bring her here, but because her faith had formed her into a specific type of person. I have never been good at convincing people that my faith makes sense. I don't even have good evidence, like something I can hold up to people and say, this is why I believe in an almighty creating God, more powerful than the Ta. But something like this... Phyllis didn't exactly smile, but her eyes brightened as she watched Aramis, who turned back to the dark windows of the restaurant. Vicky says she wants to Amy. She's not the first. Thanks for listening. 
The new Aleph's epilogue will post June 25th. If you want to show your love for the podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to make sure you don't miss it when book two launches, follow me on most of the things at A. William Wright. The Worlds of Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from his album Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. Have a good one, guys.